Take It From Us is taking a well-deserved break at the moment, so today's episode is a repeat programme. This is Mental Health Radio, take it from us, and I'm uh, host Sheldon Brown. We are pre-recording our show on Take It From Us today, and uh, our radio show is brought to you and funded by Ember Wellbeing Trust. Now, I'm going to keep uh, the introduction of my guest today, Sean McNeil, uh, deliberately short, and just say that he is the National Advisor, uh, Consumer Engagement in Mental Health and Addiction, uh, for the Health, Quality and Safety Commission. Uh, the Commission is a Crown entity with a national reach and it began work in mental health and addiction about two, two years ago. So uh, welcome, uh, Sean, to Mental Health Radio Take It From Us. I uh, haven't had the opportunity to talk a great deal to you about uh, this interview, but we did. I did get a bit of background that uh, you're Scottish and... Um, that your family uh, were the founders of Glasgow Rangers uh, football team. Is, uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right, Sheldon. Thanks. Thanks for that introduction. It's a pleasure to speak with you and your listeners. And, and yes, um, looking into my ancestry or Papa, I found out a few interesting things. Uh, naturally, some skeletons in the closet, but also that my family has a connection to founding Glasgow Rangers football team so that explains why there are so many Rangers fans in my family. <laughs> and what were the skeletons that you found? Um, just uh, unfortunately a couple of my ancestors um, uh, passed away in the poor houses in Scotland and so um, I think that was related to alcohol abuse that, that they had a position in society at one point but unfortunately they were addicted to alcohol and therefore drank all their money and ended up uh, passing away in the in the poor houses in Scotland so so yes a little bit a little bit of sadness in there uh, amongst the uh, amongst the other interesting things that I found out about my family history and uh, did the alcohol uh, cause any uh, mental health uh, issues at all um, yeah, interesting that you ask that, but uh, actually there's probably more evidence of mental health issues on my mother's side of the family rather than my uh, my uh, father's side. So, uh, so yes, pro- possibly addiction on my father's side and mental health issues on my mother's side. So, uh, quite a combination. Right, well, we have that in common. Uh, certainly my mother was... Uh, um had a history of uh, lived experience, which uh, to this day, unfortunately, uh, I've never, I, I don't understand and uh, I don't have anybody uh, alive now who could shed any light on that. But uh, uh, were you able to um, uncover some of the history of your mother's um, mental health? Yeah, I could find out a little bit. My mother's still living, um, but unfortunately she is in um, institutional care because she's no longer able to look after herself. But, um, you know, like a lot of these things, the uh, the real link is to childhood trauma. So my um, mother was abandoned by her mother during the war and um, ended up in an orphanage, although she wasn't an orphan, her, her mother was still living. And so I think as a result of that childhood trauma, then um, my mother developed mental health issues. Um, and so, yeah, you can see throughout um, history of um, incidences of trauma and then um, that relating to either um, issues with addiction or issues with mental health issues. Uh, yourself, uh, have you uh, experienced uh, trauma? Um, yes, yep. Um, my tr- the trauma I experienced um, was the breakup of my uh, father and mother when I was 10, so not something that is uh, that's uncommon, but I had a particularly close and uh, possibly abusive relationship with my mother, and so it had a particular impact on me. And 
um, have experienced mental health issues ever since the age of 10, particularly um, anxiety and depression. Um, that around uh, about 20 years ago became pretty um, severe and um, I made a couple of attempts on my life as well. So um, I am a suicide attempt survivor as well as somebody who has experienced uh, mental health issues for a long period of time. So, um, so yeah, um, all part of my lived experience that goes along with my professional experience um, to yeah make me the person I am today, I suppose. Yeah, well, thank you for being so candid about uh, that. Is it any accident then that uh, with that background in mental health and trauma from the uh, parting of your parents and... Um, is it any accident that you work in mental health? Yeah, it's probably not an accident. I actually started my career as a as a banker, but um, I'm a bit too unconventional for banking. Um, it was never it was never a comfortable fit. I think the the day that I wore pink shoes to work was the the beginning of the end for me in terms of my banking career. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did, they say, did they say that? Did they say that to you that the pink shoes weren't quite acceptable in the bank? Yeah, they, they actually asked me to travel back home and change my shoes. And as it was a journey that was about fifty kilometres, um, then that was that was quite a quite you undertaking. You didn't come back. <laughs> 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 yeah, no. Um, actually, I was involved in a um, at the wrong end of an armed robbery when I worked in banking. So um, that that was really the incident that made me think. Actually. Um, you know, maybe 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 this isn't the career for me. When you've been at the wrong side of a gun, um, then you, in your workplace, then you start to um, question, yeah, what you're doing, etc. So, uh, well, so, yeah. on that occasion, did you find the pink shoes? You couldn't run very fast in them. <laughs> well, I, I managed to jump in the back of a police car and stop the perpetrator from going into another bank and trying to rob it. So uh, some good came of it. Well, that sounds like a story in itself. Did that add? <laughs> did that add to the trauma of your life? Well, you yeah. There are there are often times when you think um, you may not think about the trauma at the time, but uh, there may well be some residual uh, trauma from that and. Uh, and at that time, my employer weren't particularly supportive, and so uh, I was actually um, back working that afternoon um, after the after the incident occurred. And of course, they arrested the perpetrator and then released him on bail. So I was thinking, obviously, the perpetrator knows where I work, oh, right. and uh, and he's out on the street, and uh, and I'm back working the afternoon after the. Uh, after the armed robbery, so uh, so yeah, it was uh, it, it, it was a, a little bit of a traumatic experience. I can see why you put the D uh, pink shoes away then, because they would be very identifiable, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's right. Although the, because of the counter in the bank, you couldn't see anything from the waist down anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like some of, like some of these broadcasters, they only wear uh, flash stuff on the top, and then when they stand up, you see they've got their pajamas on. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how long have you been uh, in your role at uh, the commission? So, um, you're right in your introduction that the in terms of the mental health uh, program has been going two and a half years, and I have been in my role with the Health Quality and Safety Commission for it'll be two years in November. So, um, so yeah, almost almost two years. I, I've been uh, working here, and prior to that, I. Um, Worked for an um, organisation called Wellink Trust that then became uh, Richmond Services after a merger, and then another merger took place, and it became the organisation that's now known as Emerge Aotearoa. Um, so, so yeah, um, that that was what I did previously. So. Um, so years in the NGO sector in New Zealand, and uh, and then uh, this role for the last couple of years. So your entry to the commission that, did that coincide with their focus on mental health and addiction, or did they have somebody initially that uh, managed that focus before you came along? 
Yeah, the prog- the mental health and addiction program within the commission has a manager called Dr. Rose Sorensen, and Rose um, leads the program, uh, manages the program in collaboration with. Um, uh, we have a leadership group that are ex- that are people external to the commission itself, and we also have a stakeholder group as well. Um, and um, they are, if you like, the, the oversight and the, the governance to some extent of the programme and Rose is the manager of the programme and I was recruited to ensure that the voice of consumers and family and family members is loud and right there in the centre of everything that we do. And you're, uh, you're achieving a, a loud voice for consumers in that role you're doing? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a colleague of mine um, spoke to me about um, my role and said that um, my an analogy for my role is that I'm like the microphone to amplify the voices of consumers and family and family members. And I work collaboratively with the uh, consumers and family family advisors who are employed by the DHBs in mental health and addictions or by the NGOs um, to ensure that we can have information feeding into the quality improvement program, but also that, that we can dis- I can disseminate information out from the program and gain views and opinions about the the overall direction because it's really important that the whole um, reason for this program is to improve services and improve outcomes for. Um, consumers and for family and family members who are in contact with mental health services. Well, you're, the Commission is currently doing a survey uh, clearly designed to uh, hear what consumers are saying about uh, the DHB mental health and addiction services. Um, do you want to say something about that survey? Because clearly it's, it's very much part of your focus to hear uh, what consumers think about mental health and addiction services. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We have a survey, which is a big part of my work plan and my deliverables, if you like. Um, So we have a survey called Naputama, and it's a survey of consumers and family family members um, who have recently um, used DHB mental health or addiction services and have been discharged or transitioned to another service. Um, So that survey is live at the moment and is looking at people who have been discharged or transitioned between the 1st of September and the 15th of October. So um, those individuals will be invited to participate in the survey and then next year we will obviously gather all the data together that comes back from that and report it. And this is a match to a survey that we did in 2018 where 2,500 mental health and addiction staff um, responded to a survey looking at the um, the services and the culture and the um, services in both the um, mental health DHB provided services but also the um, NGO, mental health and addiction NGO provided services right. in uh, New Zealand. But this Na Putama is focusing on DHB mental health and addiction. In in terms of the um in terms of the consumer family fano survey, the focus is on um DHB consumers. But what we are going to be doing is that we obviously now we have got a set of survey questions that has all been cognitively tested, so run by consumers, family and family members, nearly a hundred of them to make sure the questions are clear and understandable and are getting the answers that we that we are hoping that we're, they're going to get. So we now have that, that tested question set and we're going to make that available to any mental health and addiction NGO that wants to use it so that they can then um, survey their own um, service users 
and they can they can use that or adapt it for their own purposes. Oh. So we, we just thought it would be something that is really useful because obviously we've invested in it and we've done a lot of testing of it, so we think it might be useful for the NGOs to use if they want to. Yeah, so any listeners who want to take part in that survey can access it on www.mhasurvey.nz. Uh, it's an anonymous survey, takes 15 minutes uh, to complete. I guess if you're looking at DHB services, uh, that, that would include acute psychiatric services, uh, community mental health Um Yep, absolutely. Um, it, it includes um, all types of mental health and addiction, DHB-provided um, services, and anybody who has been um, discharged from those services between the 1st of September and up to the 15th of October can participate in the survey. And obviously the survey will go longer than the 15th of October to allow people, for example, if you are discharged on the 15th, to give them, those individuals, a couple of weeks to be able to participate in the survey before there's a, there's a close-off. So the close-off is not actually until the 21st of November. Right. But, but the period of interest is people who have been discharged from DHB services or transferred from one service to another between the 1st of September and the 15th of October. Yeah, I found it quite interesting when I, uh, because um, I was told about this and asked if I could support uh, promotion of it. And when I read about it, I I found it quite interesting that this date was in the future, you know, uh, the 15th of October. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess. we We wanted to have a period of six weeks. Um, because we looked at from the um, national data sets, we looked at the amount of people who are likely to be discharged or transferred within a particular period. And um, Health Quality Safety Commission have got a lot of experience in carrying out health surveys. In fact, we carry out the second largest survey next to the census and uh, we know the problems that there, there has been with the census. So um, we've got experience of carrying out large um, healthcare-related surveys, and so we could use that experience to look at, okay, what, what do we need in terms of a sample size and therefore a sample period of time yeah. um, so that we can ensure that the responses that we're getting are representative of the overall experience of people using mental health and addiction services in 2019 and we we intend to repeat this survey in two years time so that we can then look at what has what has progressed what's improved over that two-year period of time and um and look at any of the other things that have um have stayed the same or have deteriorated in that period of time so um in in some ways it'll be used for benchmarking as well as um as well as for capturing yeah. um, people's lived experience of what it's like to use services in 2019. Well, uh, hopefully uh, the outcomes would be um, better or people's uh, experiences of services would be better in uh, 2021 if you're doing it again in two years' time uh, because, of course, uh, the government is pouring $1.4 billion into mental health and addictions uh, after its inquiry into that sector and uh, you would hope that that uh, investment is going to create uh, a new new, innovative approach to mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is an incredible opportunity that we've got at the moment um, with the the quality improvement program that the Health Quality and Safety Commission are implementing alongside and in collaboration with the DHBs and the recommendations of Ara Oranga with regards to um, the mental health inquiry backed by the um, financial commitments out of the, the budget. So we've got a, a huge opportunity to influence new legislation, um, a new mental health and wellbeing commission, um, a suicide prevention strategy and action plan, 
and investment in uh, primary and community uh, mental health and addiction services. So, so, they're, so setting, yeah. they're setting up a suicide prevention office as well, uh, which uh, yep. must be seen as a positive. Uh, Sean, if we could just take a uh, music break, we're going to play a bit of uh, Tina Turner, and uh, you were saying that uh, Tina Turner's uh, simply the best, the best. <laughs> simply the best, is played at... Uh, um, Glasgow Rangers uh, football venue uh, every time they play. Is that the case? That's right, yes. <laughs> played played at um, Ibrox Park, which is uh, Glasgow Rangers' home venue in Glasgow. So so Tina Turner and uh, my family have a, have a relationship, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Simply the Best was also the theme for the uh, NRL in Australia and New Zealand uh, many years ago uh, with... Um, Tina Turner pumping it out. So anyway, we've got a track here called uh, Break Every Rule.
Well, this is Mental Health Radio. Take it from us, and I'm host Sheldon Brown. We are pre-recording this today, so uh, uh, no um, technician uh, Declan Curran with us today. And today we are talking to the National Advisor uh, Consumer Engagement in Mental Health and Addiction for the Health Quality and Safety Commission. Uh, his name is Sean McNeil, and Sean. Um, I I think that the jury's out a little bit in terms of the consumer movement. I uh, I tend to think that it's a little bit disen- well not disengaged, but it's uh, it's all over the place. Uh, it's not really integrated. I don't know what you feel about that. Uh, yeah, um, I can understand um, that particular feeling. Um, I, I don't think it would take much to unite the consumer movement. And um, I, st- I talk from a little bit of experience because I co-founded the National Consumer Organisation in Scotland, which is called Vox, Voices of Experience. And similarly in Scotland, we had a very um, disparate, disjointed uh, movement where there were lots of competing interests and lots of little small groups who were suspicious of each other. So it certainly was quite a task to bring those all together and to get agreement and, um, if you like, a level playing field so everybody could get around a table and decide um, what, what we wanted and how to make the most of the opportunities um, that are presented to us. So well, that, that absolutely is possible in in, um, in New Zealand, and um, it's really good to see um, the Ministry of Health, Mental Health and Addiction Directorate appoint Waitamata Tamahana to the um, to a lived experience position um, within that Directorate of the Ministry, and one of the tasks that she will have is to try to. Um, bring the movement together and um, have an element of collaboration so that we can influence the incredibly busy work agenda that the ministry has with regards to the recommendations of Ha'ara Oranga. Yeah, so, so that uh, position you've talked about, is, is that is a paid position w- with the Ministry of Health. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a paid uh, position um, full time, and um, she is currently doing hui around the country to try to ensure that voices that are seldom heard or seldom represented are um, included in the particular kopapa that she's working on. So, particularly people from rural areas and um, Maori communities. Um, the Pacific Voice, etc., to try to ensure that we're getting a really good, comprehensive and rounded um, view from um, consumers um, of all from all areas and of all particular interest groups and cultures. Yeah, well, there was a very inspirational story on an unlikely television program, Country Calendar, last night. Uh, a young woman who is uh, uh, spearheading a rural uh, suicide prevention and mental health awareness program uh, as a result of uh, uh, her boyfriend uh, taking his life. And, um, yeah, they were selling... Uh, prime uh, bulls, uh, one in particular, uh, to raise money for this campaign, and it uh, reached $16,000 uh, <laughs> at, at an auction. So, you know, it, mental health is uh, certainly cropping up in all sorts of places, and in this case, a rather unusual um, venue, if you like. Yeah, I did see that and uh, I thought it was really inspirational and, and really good that um, rural perspectives and farming perspectives were um, being asserted in that way. It, um, it's really important. And, and naturally there's a link between um, suicide and suicidality and um, mental health issues um, to some extent. Um, and we have to recognise that, that um, a whole lot of people don't have any connection with mental health who... Um, who end their life by suicide, etc. But, but yes, I think that um, the whole well-being agenda has helped to push things on in terms of um, 
in terms of mental health and mental health awareness that uh, some of us that are a bit longer in the tooth are now saying um, I was open about my mental health issues before it was fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I'm, I'm probably in the same age as, uh, as you and uh, I was very passionate when I transferred out of public relations and marketing into mental health and told my story everywhere, but I did find that there were a few downsides, uh, particularly if you're out dating uh, and uh, <laughs> clearly uh, uh, prospective uh, partners were looking on Google to see uh, what they uh, could find out about this bloke that was uh, dating them and often they found mental health stories so that was uh-huh. a, bit of, a bit of a downer. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, there, there are downsides of disclosing and really it is about um, uh, people making their own personal uh, decision about whether they disclose or not. It's really a personal choice and up to the individual because you're quite right, people can use it against you they can use it to cut you down these days we have more and more trolling and cyber bullying and things like that mm. and also in your professional life you know um, there is still stigma and discrimination and yeah I do wonder if I was a lawyer working in one of the big lawyer firms or whatever or even if I was a member of parliament would I be open about my Uh, mental health issues and my suicidality, you know, I I, I would need to really uh, think about whether that was going to be advantageous um, in those particular circumstances. So Mm. disclosure is really a personal personal choice, yeah. Uh, I do think, though, that we need, uh, somebody needs to sort of put some pluses and minuses together in terms of the whole issue of disclosure to educate people as to some of the, um, the pluses and minuses uh, around it because uh, it'll be very interesting to see with Jamie Lee Ross and his openness about his uh, mental health challenge as to whether um, he ever returns to Parliament. And I think there are a couple of organisations that I can think of who have done some work in that area. So Mary O'Hagan's Peer Zone, I know, have done some work on um, whether or whether or not to disclose. And also um, Changing Minds' programme for um, consumer leadership development called Raka Roroa. Yes. Um, They've also done some work about um, that decision about... Um, who you disclose to and what circumstances and and how you do it and and how you make that choice, you know, the pros and cons of that choice. Yeah, I guess uh, my experience is that you just never know when it's going to bite you in the backside. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> after having uh, having disclosed uh, let's uh, let's take another music break we'll give uh, Sean a little bit of a break and uh, we're playing Tina Turner uh, live from New York uh, and this track is called I Can't Stand the Rain <laughs> Bring it back, sweet memory. 
Well, I'm host Sheldon Brown on uh, Mental Health Radio. Take it from us, and we're talking to Sean McNeil, uh, who is the uh, National Advisor, Consumer Engagement and Mental Health and Addiction for the Health Quality and Safety Commission in Wellington. Um, you've mentioned well-being uh, a number of times, uh, Sean. How, how do you uh, look out for your own uh, well-being? I think over the years I've kind of learned what some of the um, triggers are for me and what some of the early signs that um, that you know I need to look after my own well-being uh, a bit more. I'm really fortunate to live on the Kapiti Coast, so I live with um, a nature reserve on one side of me and beautiful beaches on the other side, and I have two dogs, so. Um, um, getting the dogs out and walking in nature or walking along the beach um, is one of the ways in which I um, keep well and maintain my well-being. And um, I'm a huge music fan as well, so uh, um, I uh, listen to a lot of music, and music is really the the art form that I connect with. Yeah, Tina Turner, simply the best. Um, yes, yes, Tina Turner, and uh, and a whole. I've got a very eclectic taste. Uh, um, you know, ev- everything from the uh, Adele to Led Zeppelin. If you want the A to Z, so, uh, right? Well. Um, they had uh, Rolling, Rolling Stones cover band at my tennis club on Friday night, and uh, that certainly improved my well-being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So music is a huge thing for me, and uh, and and yeah, just being that awareness of yourself and tuning into your own um, your own signs and symptoms and learning about yourself and when you need to um, take some time and look after yourself. I think that's really important. So living on the Capiti Coast, I mean, there's uh, great pluses that you've you've described to us, but could it be a, a little bit isolating there? Um, it can be a bit isolating and also it tends to be the poor cousin in terms of um, the district health board because it's at the extremity of the, um, the local district health board's area and so there's a lot of campaigning in Capiti about um, trying to improve um, mental health services. And um, I know um, my wife is the manager of a tiny little wellbeing centre in Capiti and it's one of these organisations that um, only just exists on the smell of an oily rag and doesn't get any funding from any of the ministries or health boards or anything and so there's there's certainly um, significant work to do in terms of supporting the well-being of um, the, the population of Capiti. Uh, I was also reading um, on Stuff News over the weekend that uh, you, you've got a big highway going up in there and part of that, I think, Paikokariki and uh, other towns are very worried about uh, losing business and uh, being sort of uh, or dropping off the map a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Um, they're building a big highway called Transmission Gully and it's... Uh, um, it's still to be seen what kind of impact that's going to have on the smaller um, the smaller communities uh, up in the Capiti Coast because, yeah, there'll be pluses and minuses in terms of, yes, taking away the traffic takes away pollution and noise, etc., but also it takes away the passing trade from businesses as well. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, they'll need to weigh up those uh, those pluses and minuses and have... Uh, have things in place to ensure that uh, the, the disadvantage is minimised and the advantages are maximised. Right, yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, your mental health experience, uh, and thank you for being so candid about that, what, what have you learnt uh, from that experience? Um, I think that I have learned to... Um, be kinder to myself and not uh, push myself too much. I think I've learned that recovery is possible. So in Scotland, when I was at my most unwell, I was homeless and bankrupt and unemployed. And within a few years, I was employed and I was advising the Scottish government and I was talking to the... 
the members of parliament in the Scottish Parliament about um, mental health and homelessness and addiction and um, that recovery is is possible and achievable. So, um, so yeah, some of the learnings has really been that um, uh, that we need to hold on to hope, and that when we can't hold on to our own hope, then we need to find somebody in our lives who can hold it for us until we're ready to take it back again. And um, and that um, no matter how desperate things might be, and um, uh, as I said, I've got experience of surviving suicide attempts. So, um, yeah, no matter how desperate things are, that uh, that that a turnaround is possible, and um, there can be great life and great experiences around the corner. So it's just uh, it's just holding on through the difficult times until we can turn that corner and get back on the the path to recovery. So, so how did you hold on? I mean, you were homeless, bankrupt. Um, it sounds as though you could have been suicidal as well. And, yep. and yet in uh, a fairly short period of time, a couple of years, you were advising uh, politicians uh, in the Scottish Parliament. That, that's mm-hmm. an amazing, wonderful turnaround. Mm. Thanks, yeah. I um, I mean, very small steps. Um, when you're in a place where you feel as if you have no value to anyone, then it is very small steps about... Um, so the path that I took um, was firstly to start going out of the house because I hadn't gone out of the house for about 16 weeks um, and just gaining a little bit of social confidence and then I started to look around for some volunteering opportunities. And when I started volunteering, then that, that gave me a little bit of both a discipline to get up and out of bed and go and do something to contribute, but also that I had some value, some social value that people wanted me to come into the um, the place that I was volunteering and um, valued the contribution that I made. And so really building up on that as a platform and then eventually moving from volunteering into part-time work and then eventually moving from part-time work into full-time work. Um, and, and that sounds very linear. And, of course, there are setbacks and knockbacks and um, things that shatter your confidence along the way. But um, um, even if it is... Uh, three steps forward and two steps back you're still making progress towards uh, towards an outcome What sort of support did you have uh, to encourage you to get out of the house after 16 weeks and uh, and obtain some volunteering and then part time work Yeah I had a little bit of support from um, some of the local NGOs and um, Yeah, a a question that I'm often asked is, you know, what made the difference in my recovery? And that's quite hard to say because there were so many, um, there were so many things that that contributed. So trying to separate them out and say this one thing made the difference. But um, something that definitely did help was, um, was traditional talking therapies. So just having some time with a psychologist to, talk things through and them not necessarily to come up with solutions but to help me think through and talk through the the dilemmas and the challenges that I was going through and to try to help craft a pathway to get me through to the next session when I was seeing the psychologist and um, and that collaborative approach seemed to seem to help and seemed to work for for me um, much more than um, I remember a scenario where I was talking to a community nurse and had said that I had I was having real difficulty concentrating and I couldn't even read a tabloid newspaper. Um, 
and the nurse's response to that was to give me a 500-page manual about cognitive behavioural therapy to read through. (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of thought, you know, what what didn't you hear about what I just said? You know, I can't even read a tabloid newspaper, so how am I going to read a 500-page manual about CBT, you know? But, uh, but yeah, um, on the whole, the support that I got was um, was good and was useful and um, helped me to work through the negative thoughts and the feelings of I'm no good and no use to anybody yeah. to try to minimise those and to amplify the... The reality, which was that people wanted to see me and people wanted me to carry out a role and that people valued the input that I did and valued the things that I had to say. And when you tap into your lived experience, it can be incredibly empowering. Well, let's uh, thank you for that, uh, Sean. Let's take another uh, music break with Tina Turner. And this is a quieter number uh, called Two People.
Well, you're listening to Mental Health Radio. Take it from us on Planet FM, and we're talking to Sean McNeil from the Health Quality and Safety Commission. I mean, it, that example where you couldn't read a tabloid, and this community nurse gave you a 500-page document on CBT. Um, do you think she listened? Heard you? Well, there, there's listening and there's active listening, isn't there? So I think she might have been listening from the point of view that I'm um, appreciating that I was making a noise, but I'm not sure she was actually listening to the words that I was communicating or relating them to um, what she was about, what she was about to do. But uh, but, but there you go. What, um, what, uh, yeah. One of my experiences of working uh, now for over a dozen years in mental health is I don't think we're well endowed with people working in mental health and you know how to listen or even ask uh, open-ended questions. Yeah, I think it's definitely a skill um, and I think that um, often when there is um, pressure on time and high levels of caseloads and high levels of acuity, then sometimes um, it's easy to slip into uh, listening but not hearing. And so uh, it's old adage that we've got uh, two ears and one mouth, so we should listen um, twice as much as we talk. And, uh, yeah, that's really important in all professionals, um, not just the nursing profession, but uh, particularly um, the medical profession as well. there, those, those, what they would call softer skills in terms of uh, active listening and uh, and communication and um, empathy and compassion are the fundamentals of working in the mental health and addiction field. And they are some of the um, <coughs> the values that I can hear you have learned through your uh, personal experience. Yeah, I actually come from a nursing background and so I was a mental health nurse for 10 years in Scotland. And so those those uh, values were core and fundamental to the um, nursing practice that we learned and that, we, um, that I practiced in the 1990s. And um, one of the things about um, practicing as a mental health nurse in Scotland is that... Um, in acute care, we um, never used the practice of seclusion. It wasn't something that we ever had the ability to do, and we never needed to do it, and so we never did it. And so that's really relevant to the um, project that the Health Quality and Safety Commission is um uh, working with in collaboration with the district health boards right now to eliminate seclusion by the end of 2020 because I know that it's possible to practice in a acute and intensive mental health environment without having to lock people in a bare room from which they can't exit or control the light or the heat or the ventilation, etc. So there's really no need for um, what is essentially solitary confinement in mental health environments. Well, that was a a brilliant segue from uh, talking about your values to talking about some very important work that the Health Quality and Safety Commission is undertaking. Are you leading this campaign to eliminate um, seclusion? So the um, the the Commission are working collaboratively with all of the um, the DHBs on the goal to eliminate seclusion by the end of 2020. And um, the part that I lead, if anything, is ensuring that the voices of people who have experienced seclusion and their family whanau are heard loudly within that particular project. So you're you're doing a survey among uh, people that have uh, been exposed to solitary confinement and seclusion, or what we're doing is um, we are launching an um, video narrative project. So there's a really great learning resource um, that was created by organisation called Awareness Canterbury and the film is called Opening Doors and if, if you look it up on YouTube or whatever you'll be able to find Opening Doors 
um, all about seclusion. So that's, that was a great resource that was made um, around about seven years ago. And so we are going to be carrying out a video narrative project. And in the first year of that project, we're going to be looking for um, up-to-date experiences of people who have experienced seclusion, both for them to share that as a talent, as a gift to us, but also from a learning perspective for us to find out what that experience was like for them, but also what may have prevented that seclusion event from happening so that we can add to the learning towards um, eliminating the practice by the end of 2020. It's a very ambitious uh, goal, uh, the end of 2020. Do you think that's achievable? Unfortunately, we've got very short time, so probably I shouldn't be asking you to comment on that. But we'll yeah. we'll leave that. We'll have to leave that up in the air, I think, Sean. And uh, thank you very Absolutely much. Absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's wonderfully confident to say that. Thank you for that. Okay, Sean, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, just a community notice from uh, Support Brave Hearts. Uh, that's support at bravehearts dot nz. Uh, these are uh, this is a group who uh, is supporting uh, people, uh, loved ones who are looking after somebody with an addiction. Uh, they do have a meeting on uh, Tuesday night. That's uh, tonight, the first of October, at seven pm. Uh, that's in Hamilton. Uh, the speaker there is a Neville Gib- uh, Gibbons from. Salvation Army Bridge and it's going to be at the AOD Trust at 28 Manning Street in Hamilton uh, next uh, following Tuesday the 8th there's a meeting in Tauranga this is of support brave hearts that's going to be at Elam Tauranga at 59 Coromico so check out those meetings uh, they're extending throughout the country there's another in West Auckland on the 10th of October and uh, they're looking to set up something in Machuaco and Nelson. So that's been Take It From Us. Thank you for listening. Our pre-record and we'll be back uh, next week uh, on the 8th of October.